Welcome to Elixir Wizards, podcast where we talk about Elixir. It's a very special episode today. We're doing a lunch episode from Lone Star Elixir 2020. I'm here with my regular co-host, Eric Ostrich. Hello. I'm also joined at the table right now with the organizer of Lone Star Elixir, Bruce Tate. It's my birthday, you know. How old are you, Bruce? Do you mind me asking? Yes, I'm on. Okay. 55. <laughs> hey, you're halfway to 110. Halfway? I, I believe the senior's menu also just opened. <laughs> oh, my God. Scott's fire. <laughs> I, I always say that because my dad, when he turned 55, was like, let's go and eat. This is my menu. Man, you say that like an insult, but I'm really happy about that. He was, like half he, price. Yeah, he was, he was excited. Discounts. Yeah. He was very excited. They did have to shift their dinner time up to 4 p.m. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who is this unrecognized voice that just popped up? Steve Bussey. Hey, everyone. I'm Steve Bussey. So we're here at Lone Star Elixir Conf. We just wrapped up with the first two sessions. It's lunch right now. This is our famed lunch episode that hopefully will become now a tradition that we're doing it twice. Steve, you're joining us for the first time on the lunch. Are you, this is the first time on Elixir Wizards? Have you been on the show before? I have, yeah, I've not been on Elixir Wizards before. Well, so it's also my first lunch episode at the same time. Incredible. Tell us a little bit then about like your experience. Like, where do you work? How did you get into Elixir? How are you enjoying the conference so far? Yeah, so I'll start with the conference one. Great. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed the talk so far. So I think it's just going to continue. You know, to have really high quality content for the rest of the conference. So I'm really excited about it. And the venue is like pretty cool and unique. So it's also pretty cool to be here. I've been doing Elixir now for probably something like three and a half years or so. I work at a company called Salesloft. We're based in Atlanta, Georgia. And one of my coworkers, so the way I got into Elixir, one of my coworkers had heard about it and was really interesting to him. We, we have a Ruby background. So, you know, there was this connection there. I think that's how he sort of got into it. And it just sort of became this running thing in our meetings when we'd be planning out a new feature or something like that. You just be like, Elixir, Elixir. Do we know this coworker? Well, he's not here. He doesn't come out to many conferences. Okay. Uh, his name's Ben Olive. Okay. I, I was thinking of someone else, maybe it's sales loft. Oh, there. no. Oh, no, no. I, I know who you're thinking about, but no. So this was before, this was probably like three and a half years ago. So the, okay. many of the new people have, sh- have come in the last like two years or so. Very cool. So you just dropped the venue. Maybe, Bruce, you want to talk a little bit about the Alamo Draft House where we're recording this? Yeah, so this is this is one of my favorite stories. There's a family that, a couple of business partners that bought an old kind of nearly gutted movie theater and they ripped out every other seat and they installed tables. And then they brought in a lot of UT students to do the trailers. But sooner or later, the trailers became the thing, right? So you could be coming to see Lord of the Rings or something and you would see like a 1960s go-go version of a video about Bilbo Baggins, right? Or you could be seeing, you know, one of the Star Wars franchise movies and, and they would have nothing but YouTube outtakes of, you know, uh, whether it's the Jedi guy or the Force Kittens, you know, kind of the classic. The Force the, Kittens. The trailers became the thing, right? And so now... There are Alamo draft houses everywhere, just all over Austin. And I think that Anna said, oh, I've never been to Austin, but we have one in San Francisco. And she said, maybe the first one was in San Francisco. I said, no, no, it's Alamo, Alamo. Texas. I love Austin. I'm really glad that we have a conference here. And I hope that that we will always have a conference here. It is a very cool venue, very unusual, very hipster kind of vibes. How did you decide? You said you knew the, the founders or... Yeah. So for a conference, it's all about Maggie Tate and everybody knows that. Hey, applause. Come on. Applause. We have an audience. We're we're recording in front of a live studio audience. They're very enthusiastic. Yeah. So Maggie is all about hospitality and sense of place. And so one of the things that we wanted to do. So previously, the conference was at a place that was easy for one person to manage. There's a place called Norse Conference Center. They treated us great. You write one check and everything is done. And then Jim could focus on building the community and establishing things and did really a fantastic job with that. But this one of Jim the things... Fries, one of the yeah, elder Fries. statesmen of the Elixir community. Right, right. And for those of you who don't know, the very first Elixir Conf was in Austin. And then when that kind of moved on and started rotating, this became Lone Star Elixir. So we think that this is Elixir Conf 3.0. And we're after the things that Jim did, plus hospitality plus a real sense of place. And, you know, so that's, that's why we picked the Alamo draft house. 
Well, it really is awesome to be here. I want to go back to Sales Loft because I feel like I might have cut you off a little bit when you were, Steve, when you were just getting into the story about how Sales Loft adopted Elixir and you were talking, and we're going to be rotating guests here. So for anyone that can't see what's happening, we're, you know, we're going to have new voices and new people joining the show as uh, the launch hour continues. But Steve, can you talk, just can you dive a little bit more into that process? Because I imagine, First of all, I'm the guy at my company constantly like reiterating the same thing over and over and people are like, shut up. <laughs> we get it. You like want to build chatbots or do blockchain or whatever. But can you talk a little bit about how it actually worked as far as selling the idea to the decision makers? Yeah. So and we and that was something that had to be done. We have a CTO basically setting technical direction. That's something that the CTO does at a company. And so choosing a new language to run in production is a big technical choice to make. So what happened there is just over time, bring it up, bring it up, sort of talking about like why this thing would be a good fit for a particular problem or, or just in general also. And what language were you coming from? From Ruby. From Ruby. Yeah. Okay. So very traditional like Ruby on Rails type of application. Right. So just bringing it up, bringing it up. And then finally, you know, Ben had wrote the first service that we ever stood up in Elixir. It really just made sense for Elixir, but also it served as a really good proof of concept. And so when this thing was able to come online and even now, I mean, it's been, you know, probably four years since that service was stood up and there hasn't, we haven't had like these, any type of like fire drills with it or big issues. Like that really at that time proved out that proof of concept and sort of got that CTO level buy-in. And then the process of adoption sort of came in where figuring out how to actually put this thing into the stack and, and how it all fit in. So. And now how much of your stack is Elixir? I would say we probably have something like 10 to, so it's like sort of microservice with monolith in the center. I would say we probably have about 10 to 15 microservices that are based in it. And some of our very core features of the app are based in it. So it is, you know, I don't know percentage wise, but it's a good amount of the stack that's now powered directly by Elixir. Mm -hmm. And is there a plan to move entirely over to Elixir and sort of sunset all the rails? I don't think so. And I wouldn't personally want to work on that project because it is a, I'm doing one now of extracting code, uh, extracting a feature out of the Rails monolith into a microservice. It's just a lot of work to do that to make sure you don't impact users. You know, it's a really big deal that takes a lot of like thought into, is this the right thing to be doing? I had that question many times as I'm doing this extraction of this. So I do think that it's something that for us, I would say, hey, probably leave that bit there. Try to stem off new features to it as much as possible. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we'll always have that that core there. I don't think that'll change. Very cool. And we just had someone join the show. Can, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Bruce Williams. So I'm another Bruce, but a different Bruce. I'm the co-creator of Absinthe, which is the GraphQL package for Elixir. Oh, my gosh. And, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, no, it sounds terrifying. And I work at GitHub these days mm -hmm. for about, a, I guess, about the last year. Before that, I worked at CargoSense, which is still around. And Ben Wilson is... Uh, Ben Wilson is there, who's my co-creator of Absinthe, and we built that company to be based off of a off of Elixir. Like you said Cargo Sense. Cargo Sense, okay. yes. And our entire stack there was built on top of Elixir. GitHub's a different story; it's a lot more complicated beast, obviously. But making some inroads, I think. Yeah, I think I the last I heard, Sophie De Benedetto also just started there, and she was starting to look at Go stuff. So mm, yes, yeah, actually, Sophie did just join. Actually, I just saw her in in San Francisco not too long ago. Really excited to see her join. And there's there's a lot of people at GitHub that are interested in Elixir. There's we have our own group there. And there is some, you know, kind of experimental toes in the water kind of work. But as your other guests mentioned, when you have a you know a large Rails monolith, which GitHub's Rails monolith uh, dwarfs many of them, it's a big ship to steer. And so So I want to talk about GraphQL because I think that if we didn't We'd have people like tweeting at us sure. and very upset. So I think a couple questions that come to mind are, you know, I am loosely familiar with GraphQL. Yeah. I use it in a hackathon project and uh, I still am not really sold. So I'd love to be sold on GraphQL and also talk about Absinthe and maybe why that might help sell me. Just to put mm -hmm. this out there, I run a small unconference called ResFest. So yes. we, we've got that there. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. That's fine. And, you know, don't set the bar any higher for me. So my first question would be the data that you that's you know your API is exposing. Is it related in any way? Isn't all data related? Yeah. So why aren't you using a graph? So that's how I would start. 
it just by mention that perhaps the modeling that you you're exposing should have some type of relationship to the way the data actually is. That's that's my first step. I expected you to drop the mic. So no, <laughs> I had to find it then. So I mean, that's how it would start. GraphQL isn't a small thing to get into, right? Mm -hmm. It's super complicated. I'm not going to lie about that. I often say that the learning curve is a cliff that you have to climb, and it's maybe even worse as a maintainer. Try building that system. And so, uh, for instance, GitHub has a huge GraphQL API that's written in Ruby. It's been extremely useful for us both internally and externally because of the ability for self-documentation. There's, I don't know, actually a specification versus like REST, for instance. Yeah. And the tooling that you can build off of it can be so much richer. Mm. I think a lot of people have added things on top of REST. Right. And I'm certainly not saying that REST doesn't have its place, especially when it comes to internal APIs. But I think if you want to offer users a rich API experience that they can easily hook up to tools, then GraphQL is a great thing to use. Especially for two cases, I'll, I'll just briefly point out. One, if you've got front-end engineers that are doing React, GraphQL is kind of a no-brainer these days. And that actually crosses over into other things too, like Vue and Angular. There's plenty of tooling in the JavaScript world around GraphQL because that's where it came out of. The second thing is really lightweight admin interfaces. So let's say you're a small shop and you have a couple of support people that need to do things like create new accounts or maybe bump people from one tier to another tier. You could spend the time building a UI for them internally, or you could, and I've done, we've done this in the past, say, here's a couple GraphQL documents. Here's a really nice UI that you can just drop things into. There's lots of really cool clients like Altair is a good example. And with a little bit of documentation, you can basically give someone the ability to administer their system with very little like technical knowledge. It's been very useful. I really hope that our director of development operations, who is here at the conference but not in the room, I hope that he comes by and you guys can talk about this because we've been trying to, I mean, I haven't been totally sold, but I'm always open to it. And you might have just sold me, but I, I would love it if you could try to sell him because he's he's the uh, the man who makes the decisions. I'm here. Yeah. So. Yes. Thank you, Justice. Thanks, Bruce. It was Great to actually meet you in person, and I have your book that you and Ben Wilson wrote about GraphQL and Absinthe and Elixir, so now it's it's nice to meet like this godlike figure in person. If you're listening you, at home, if, if you've never met Bruce, he's 8 foot 7 inches tall. Yes, that's correct. 450 pounds. He's almost, almost the size of Kim Jong-un. So... Yes. Anyway, thank please, you. Please, please edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Bruce. We're going to switch over to our our next companion here at the table, Ricardo, mi amigo desde Chihuahua, Mexico. Así es. Ah, qué pasó down in Chihuahua. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, man. It's nice to see you stateside again. So, can you just maybe introduce yourself? Tell us what you're working on and. Maybe just like, what's the Elixir scene like in Central Mexico? Normex. No, okay, Norteño, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, I'm Ricardo Echavarria. Everybody calls me Richie. And I work for a company in San Francisco called Brain. And we do a lot of stuff with uh, Zoom video conferencing on recording, recording your video calls and helping you yeah, so helping you share them and maybe annotate them and all that stuff. And basically, I work as a backend developer, mostly working on with Elixir. And Elixir, I don't think is very popular in North Mexico, but in general, like in Mexico, the whole country, Elixir, I mean, is one of the biggest communities of Elixir developers. I think the biggest one is in San Francisco, and then the next one is Mexico City. Oh, really? Okay, great. What are some of the companies maybe that are based out of Mexico that we we might have heard of that are in the Elixir space? Ooh, that you might have heard I don't know. There's a lot of like uh, consultancy companies. I know there's a couple of people working with uh, the government that use Elixir for specific issues on like taxes and all that stuff. Okay. Wow. That's really, uh, that's really good to know. I think it's one great part of our, our Beam ecosystem is we've had this heritage that exists in Northern Europe, but we are getting a lot of the Elixir influences coming 
sort of north from Brazil, thanks to uh, Plataforma Tech and Jose specifically. So I've already met a few people here at the Lone Star Elixir Conference that came up from Uruguay. And so, yeah, it's great. Like I've never been in another programming community where there have been so many different people from so many different places that were so like actively involved. Yeah, and so many different backgrounds. And I think that for me, like being from Mexico, it's been very easy to be in the Elixir community and I feel very accepted actually. So it's very cool. Awesome. Yeah, and I think I've seen you at almost every Elixir comp that I've been to. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I just missed the first one in 2014. And since 2015, I think I've been all of them. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the community doesn't get started by itself. So I think we've already mentioned Jim Freeze. So another shout out to Jim Freeze and thank him for what he's done for the Elixir community. But he couldn't have put on all those conferences without the help of a lot of volunteers. And Ricardo is one of them. So if you've if you've ever gone to the registration table at ElixirConf or tried to pick up your t-shirt at any Elixir conference. Probably I was there. You probably met Ricardo. <laughs> so seriously, thank you so much for all your contributions. And it's always great to see you at these conferences and hopefully elsewhere. Thank you. So thank you, Ricardo. So we have another guest joining us. This guy is kind of big time. He's a member of the Observability Working Group and the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation. Brian Negley. How's it going? Great, man. It's nice to see you. I feel like I haven't seen you since the flight yesterday when I sat right next to you. Yeah, that was, that was forever. Yeah. Like we used to work together and then we live in the same city, but the only time I see you was on a flight to Austin once a year. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true, but... <laughs> no, that's probably... That's, that's definitely not true. Yeah, one of the benefits of working remotely is I never have to smell these people in person. <laughs> it's great to have you at the conference and great to have you on the, on the podcast. On the podcast. I mentioned before you're a member of the Observability Working Group. Talk a little bit about what you guys are working on in the Observability Group and maybe what you're working on specifically. Yeah, that's a large topic. So... Fortunately, Greg Mefford will be speaking a little bit later, another member of the group, on open telemetry, which is not a Erlang Elixir thing, not to confuse the two, even though, but let's say telemetry. So open telemetry is a cloud-native compute foundation, CNCF incubator project to replace open tracing, open census, and open metrics into one standard. The Beam Elixir Erlang telemetry project is an abstraction that was only ever intended for Beam and Elixir, but this was prior to open telemetry even being announced. So now we're doing a lot of stuff where we started with metrics, just kind of the standard stuff that most people are used to, but now Almost all of our attention is focused on making tracing happen in Elixir and Erlang in a much richer way. I'm sorry, I just re-entered the conversation. Now I'm curious. I don't know anything. What is tracing? So that's a great question. So tracing is essentially stitching together a series of events. If we look, let's just take an HTTP request as an example. So the request comes in at the top. Of your, of your Phoenix endpoint. At that point, let's just say that that's the start of the trace. So we're going to generate a trace ID at that point, and that's the start of it. When the request is finally finished, you'll have an end event, and so that is a span. So what we're primarily interested in there in that span is a couple of things. One is when did it start, like on the wall clock is one thing. Second thing we want to know is how long did that whole operation take? And then we might be interested in certain things about what happened at the end of that. What was the result? In this case, like what was the status code of it? What route was this on as well? Was it a put, a get? All these things you might care differently about as to performance. And how is this different just from like logging? So for tracing, you could just log that, right? Tracing is essentially distributed logging. Is uh, one way I've heard it spelled out. It does make a lot of sense. So if you think about your a trace, what we're really looking for is like we have this one span at the top, but then you're going to go into a controller and something else is going to happen there. And then maybe it makes a database call and something else is going to happen there and all the way down. So when it's within your application, that's called APM, which is like 
application performance metrics. But if you have like a friend and client or something, one of the things you want to potentially know is when this particular user clicked on this box on the on the screen, everything that happened all the way down to the database and back. And that allows you to get more insight more quickly, debugging and everything else as to where things are happening, what could be a bottleneck, what could be a problem. And when you say where things are happening and you're saying in distributed context, I mean, does it include... All the way down to a function. And node information? Yeah, you could totally add that as part of your context. So when you have a span, you can just add arbitrary tags and values to it. So you can say like, it was on this container and this AZ and this region with this SHA, that was the image that was running at the time. So on and so forth. I appreciate you bearing with my totally naive question. No, it, it's kind of the more advanced topic when it comes to observability. One last question for you before we let you get back to lunch. I know you, you kind of signed on to these telemetry projects under the impression that you'd be writing Elixir to help the community out. And uh, a decision was made shortly thereafter that the implementations for tracing were all going to be done in Erlang so that it could benefit the entire ecosystem. So you, I guess, wrote your first Erlang code or maybe the first Erlang code in a while to kind of help support this project. What was that like? Yeah, so my, I think I had a really excellent introduction because I didn't go and write a library in Erlang. And that was my first time really sitting down and writing something in Erlang beyond like using, you know, particular statements. Like we're, we're used to using that in Elixir. Like I'm just going to drop down and use this particular thing. It's not really dropping down. I'm going to skip over to using, you know, like syscit state on a gen server so I can see what's going on inside of it. Fortunately, telemetry polar at the time, which is a library that we have that essentially runs as a cron. It just runs on a certain time period and it will emit telemetry events that you can then attach handlers to and listen to. So these typically are things that are, like, are instantaneous point in time things that you want to know about. What's my ETS table sizes? What's the scheduler sizes? Run queue links, like all that kind of fun stuff. So it's all written in Elixir. And fortunately, it wasn't a huge library and it's fairly straightforward, but it needed to be completely rewritten into Erlang so that it was available for everybody. So yeah, so I, I tackled that on a couple of flights <laughs> oh. and, and hanging around and then was able to have the great Tristan Slaughter and Jose and a few others work through the lengthy PR process, which went really well and actually didn't take that long. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you, Brian Nagley uh, from Weed Maps, right? Yes, I am at Weed Maps and I'll be speaking at Codebeam next week. I'll be in Stockholm in May. All right. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Before we move on, I want to say a couple things. The most important of which is that, so, so Eric disappeared and Eric disappeared because Eric's over in the audience now having lunch. And the theme of Lone Star this year is hospitality. And I think we might be misnaming it a theme because I think that it's more the soul of what's happening at Lone Star, what's happening in the Elixir community. I don't expect it to be a one-time thing like a theme sometimes is, right? Like we have themes for the season, for every season of the podcast. And then, you know, we move on from that theme. I think the hospitality really is at the heart. And so I want to thank, she just walked in, Maggie Tate just walked in and she brought us plates of food while we're recording a podcast so that we don't go hungry during the lunch hour. And to me, that is just evidence of a loving and gentle heart, hospitality and action. It's a really beautiful thing. It's really being lived out here at Lone Star Mixer. The other thing I want to mention while I'm digressing and on the topic of conferences is that MPEX NYC as of right now, has an open CFP and it will be open for at least a couple more weeks. So if you're in the audience in the live recording right now and you are considering speaking at any of the conferences, MPEX is a great conference. I know the organizers, they're really top-notch people and you should submit a talk proposal because you have nothing that you can lose by submitting a talk proposal and you have a lot to gain. It really is a great experience to talk at a conference to be a part of the community and contribute to that way. So thank you so much for letting me digress. Todd, do you want to introduce our new guest that just arrived? Yes, absolutely. Before I do, though, I just want to double up on what you were saying about hospitality. So Maggie, you know, it's often like, oh, this is Bruce and Maggie Tate's conference, but all evidence points to the fact that Maggie has been doing all the work. Um, 
Bruce will ask, like, I'll be like, Bruce, dude, can we do this thing? And he'll be like, I, go ask Maggie. And <laughs> yeah, so really kudos to, to Maggie and the rest of the group for making this conference happen. So far, it's been absolutely spectacular. And the Gig City Conference was really unbelievable. You could tell that every everything that was done was really well curated and really well thought through. So if you have an opportunity to join us this year at Gig City, at the Gig City Elixir Conference in October in Chattanooga, beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee, you should definitely make an opportunity for yourself to come down there. And this year, we're also going to be having the inaugural Nerves Comp, which will be the day leading up to Gig City. So come for Nerves Comp, stay for Gig City, and enjoy the food. And if you have time, stop and see the uh, sponge display at the Chattanooga Airport. I'm waiting for Nerves Comp to invite me to MC. We can talk to people about that. If you're listening, Emily Maxie from Very. Emily, Emily's going to be on the show. Emily, we're planning on getting Emily on Elixir Wizards. We're scheduling it right now. So that's going to be really exciting. And someone else from Barry. Awesome. Yeah. Our next guest here joining us is a gentleman that I've known for a couple of years now. He comes all the way from beautiful Western New York, city of Buffalo or nearby Buffalo, yeah. Frank Kumro. Hey, thank you for having me. Cool. So Frank, tell us, maybe introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from and well, where you live and also who you're working for and what you guys are working on there. Sure. I live south of Buffalo, New York in the lovely snow belt ski country. Getting a blizzard right now. I work for Active Prospect and we are helping lead vendors and buyers ensure that they can sell and buy leads that are valid. Cool. And you guys are, I shouldn't say you guys. You folks at Active Prospect are currently hiring for Elixir or Elixir and Ruby? Mainly Elixir. We do have some legacy Ruby that we're slowly transitioning over, but Elixir is our main concern. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds like a great opportunity. If you're out there looking maybe for your next job, I would say, you know, hit up the people at Active Prospect, give that a shot. You get to work with great people like Frank Kumro. I'm going to jump out and let Eric, the official podcast host, jump back in for a second. Frank, while you're here, can you talk a little bit about like your architecture and like what what does Active Prospect look like from the inside? Well, right now we're split into a Ruby Legacy monolith that's 10 years old, if not a little older. And, rails, I presume? Yes, Rails. Okay. Uh, and we're on bare metal at IBM. We're currently transitioning over to AWS in a couple steps. My cousin is on corporate social over at IBM, actually right down the street from here. You guys need now to sponsor us. IBM needs to sponsor this podcast. All right, Brittany, get on it. Sorry, continue, Frank. Oh, no problem. And we hit an interesting reflection point where you hear a lot of people talk about my code needs to scale. However, they don't mention too much about architecture and infrastructure scaling, where if it costs more to add clients than it does to keep them, like your infrastructure costs are too much to add clients. Mm -hmm. Then you have to reevaluate your architecture. And that's where we are at at this point. We're currently re-architecting our main ingestion app to be able to scale and reduce our infrastructure costs. Mm -hmm. And we're utilizing Elixir for that and AWS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you said earlier in your sponsored talk, was it a terabyte a day? Is that what you said? Yeah, we're, we're ingesting a terabyte of data a day and 11.5 million API requests today. You know who could be really helpful with that? Eric. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick plug for Smart Logic. Definitely hire us. <laughs> if Jair's in the audience, he definitely wants me to do that. So, Is there anything else that you can kind of tell us about? I guess I'm asking these questions because you know there's probably people in the audience listening who are thinking about applying for jobs. And if they apply, these are questions that they're going to ask when you of say, course. hey, do you have any questions for me? And so maybe you can answer that now and give them kind of as much detail as possible. And they can come in and blow your socks off by being super duper prepared. Yeah, that would be awesome. Realizing Elixir 1.9 and we are mixing OTP for some stateful services and stateless services in the ingestion portion. But then we're also utilizing Redis to have a persistent queue because we need to make sure that we don't lose data. Data is our bread and butter. So that one terabyte of data coming in, we cannot lose any of it. And then we're handing that off. It's a mixture of data storage technologies now that we're simplifying. So we have some React, which we're deprecating. We have some Mongo, which we will be deprecating. 
What, what was the speaking of what, data loss? What was the first one that you mentioned? Rioc. Rioc. What's it's a key value store from Basho. Yeah. I've never heard of this. That's me. I mean, I don't know a lot of things, <laughs> believe it or not. Anything else uh, about Active Prospect that you want the audience to know? Before? We're fully remote. Okay. Uh, and it's the Trusted Forum team. Remote first. We even have one of our engineers in, is in Uruguay. And it's, it's just great. It's a great team, great community and company. And I love that we sponsored a Lone Star to help the, the community out and hopefully reach some more developers or people who are just interested. Active Prospect, a platinum sponsor of Lone Star Elixir, and hopefully one day a sponsor of this podcast. That was me <laughs> winking at him. We're joined by another guest on the other side of the table here, Zach Thomas. You were just on the show, literally today. The episode that came out today. And we're going to do it show. tomorrow, right? And then the day after and the day after? I would, certainly trend. I would love for you to be a regular guest. We have so much to talk about, and uh, I'm going to totally digress from the Alexia thing because Let's go. Uh, yeah, you're a philosophy major from a liberal arts college. Your talk today was about having fun yeah. in programming. Yeah. I think that was really good. Have you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? I've read a little bit of it. I haven't gotten all the way through, but yeah, I've read a little bit of it. Okay, so he, Robert Perth, it goes into this whole notion. I mean, I think that what we, the word or the phrase that you were sort of dodging was philosophy of quality, yeah, maybe. something like that. Yeah, you said aesthetic resonance. I really like that. Yeah. In this book, he, he makes a point. Kind of, that's the flip side of the fun coin, which was if you're working on a motorcycle or if you're working on an application and you're running into challenges, difficulties, frustrations, that is a signal of a different kind that you're learning something or Absolutely. you're on the edge of learning something. Absolutely. And so I wanted to kind of, could you, cause you talked about how fun is the subconscious indicator to the programmer that they are doing the right thing. Can you talk about what is, what does it mean when you're bumping up against the challenge? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the major responses that I've seen to this talk when I've given it before is what role does like challenge and growth and new experiences play in that when it's not just sunshine and rainbows all the time, we're actually bumping up against stuff. And I always respond with the same thing that like, I'm bad at picking words and fun isn't perfectly the word that I mean. I mean something more like it's things are flowing well, not necessarily a flow state. Things are operating well. And I think challenge is a big part of that. I mean, like, I don't think it sounds fun to many people to sit in a lazy boy armchair for a hundred years. I think a lot of what we find fun is the challenge and the growth and the moving forward. You know what I mean? Mm, maybe the word we're looking for is meaning. I, oh. oh, do it. Do it. See? Okay. <laughs> All right. So like, this is one of those kinds of talks where that kind of thing always comes up. Like what's the, what's the meaning behind what we're doing or something like that. And I, I don't know if I can make any sort of qualitative statement aside from that, aside from that, like maybe fun is a, a sufficient meaning for a lot of what we're doing. Maybe like mm. having a good time and growing and becoming like better at what we do, becoming better people and having fun while we're doing it. Maybe that is as close to meaning as we can. Is it, is it naive to think that it also could mean being a really useful engine? Ah. Uh, See, that's the other question, right? Like, is it a utility thing? Is it a metric of utility? And I'm not sure, right? I mean, I think for some people it is. I think my main point is that it's relativistic, right? That it's, there's no privileged perspective for what that type of growth looks like. Can, can the new voice that just joined us introduce yourself and then dive further into that question? I'm just here to supervise, that's all. <laughs> so I'm Dave Thomas. And yes, there's a relationship here. That's <laughs> my dad over there on the other side of the table. How's it going? I'm disappointed in your son. I know. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> this is going to be our best episode ever. That's why I got into this industry. <laughs> yeah, it's actually amazing, right? So two years ago, he he was programming a bit at home, but not doing anything. Now he's uh, hold on. I wasn't not doing anything. No, no, no. Not <laughs> any programming. Not hold on a second. Okay. All right. Fine. Right. I'll allow it. Yeah. Now we're sitting on a panel at a conference that you just get to talk at, which is quite amazing. So, anyway. Are you Do proud I sound- now, Dad? Are you proud of me now? No, almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Keep working on it. Keep it's all about that growth. Yeah. Yeah, get your hair cut. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm curious about the philosophical divide, though. It seems like you have sort of an Eastern philosophical viewpoint, oh, very relativistic. Very, you just like, are trying to put words in my mouth all day. Like, what is? I don't know if I'd say uh, this that. is justice. I, I'm trying <laughs> to understand. I'm trying to understand. Uh, I don't know if I say that I subscribe to any sort of systematic approach to. That's a very Eastern point of view. Well, <laughs> what, what about you, Dave? Do, 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 what do you think of the like philosophical approach to programming? I mean, you've written the pragmatic programmer. Talk a little bit about it. I, I've got a. I mean, actually, my talk tomorrow is going to be elaborating on all that kind of stuff. But I think there's a when we are we're fooling ourselves if we think we're engineers. If we think that there is a <laughs> um, a plan behind what we do, right? We are working off our gut the whole time. And not recognizing that is where a lot of the tension comes, right? I should be able to do this because the timescale said it should take three weeks, you know, mm. or whatever else. And we try to fool everybody that we know what we're doing, as opposed to what we're doing right now, which is just messing around and seeing what works and what doesn't. So I think he's absolutely right to say that, you know, there's no particular structure right now, underlying structure to what we should be doing. So in that environment, all you can do, you don't just listen to your gut because that sounds really lazy, right? Mm -hmm. Instead, what you're doing is you're working on developing your intuition. And your entire career, I think, should be based around tuning your intuition. And to do that, you give yourself constant feedback. Mm -hmm. And in, I think in that environment, he's absolutely right that what you listen to for that feedback is those little subtle cues that you get from your gut. You know, you walk down a street and you get this kind of kind of shaky feeling or something. You don't know what's going on, right? But maybe there's someone in the doorway that you don't like the look of, or maybe there's a car that's coming towards you, whatever it might be. You listen to your gut, right? You're out in the jungle and you hear this noise, right? What do you do? It's all of those kind of reflexes that you develop. And I think we need to develop those reflexes. And you can do it. You can, when you first learn to drive a car, you're sitting there gripping the wheel like death. And you're thinking it was all in your head, right? You could never hold a conversation with someone who's learning to drive mm. because their entire brain is learning to drive. And the entire process of learning to drive is the process of taking all of that response, all of that reflex, sorry, all of that conscious response that you're doing and turning it into a reflex response, an intuition. And at some point, you discover that you can drive without thinking about it. And you can talk to people while you're driving. I've got so many questions. I'm glad that you're both here. The one thing that came up earlier in the conference was that we need to, this was in Melvin Sedino's talk. He, he said that we need to create space for junior developers to come in and learn Elixir. And you're an incredibly accomplished book author. You come from a, Zach, you come from an unconventional sort of educational background to be in the computer science space. I'm curious, Dave, first, like, what, what do you think? is the the path to creating those openings for entry-level Elixir developers and how much should we be focused on it? Do you mean creating the openings or creating the developers? I mean creating the developers. Okay. Really. Yeah. There is only one quality that is an indicator, and that is, do you have someone who views problems as something that can be thought about? Which I know sounds like really wishy-washy. But, okay, so I teach undergraduate, got like a, I'm an adjunct at SMU, so I teach like a class a semester or something. And I am amazed at the number of students that come along who don't have the, I guess, experience or knowledge to know that when you look at a problem, you can actually think about it and solve it, as opposed to guess, no, guess, no, guess, no. Right? I think that once you get people who have that capability, turning them into programmers is trivial because all you have to do is to show them here's a tool that makes that faster and they go oh wow right and then you try and take that keyboard away from them because that's going to be motivated so then the trick is our public education system is a total failure because all it does is homogenize can we get it we get an amen <laughs> yes hey. but because all it does is homogenize people it takes all of the, the brightness out of people. Right. It takes the, the low-end people and makes them feel worthless. It is a total and absolute nightmare, right? 
we do the same to developers. We take these people who have this spot. I want to solve this. I know I can solve this. We take these people and then we put them into CS 101. And by the end of the thing, they can grind out C++. Right. Right? Don't do that. All right. If you want to, do, want to develop developers, you give them the tools. And I think as importantly, you give them problems. Mm-hmm. And then you basically answer questions. I think if you can do that, you're golden. And that's, I think, boot camps actually do that better than CS courses, if it's a good boot camp. Because they are very much focused on building a set of problems and then building solutions to those problems. And so everything you do is motivated by building those solutions. But as I say, if you have a good boot camp, you're going to grow, you're going to have mentoring, you're going to be able to explore on your own. Can you talk a little bit about how that would translate into a book format specifically? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. That's kind of the point. Yeah. That's kind of the whole point, right? Is that this isn't a nice recipe. And that's kind of why it isn't something that's very popular, I think, or it isn't very common. Whenever I hear the question of like, how do we make more junior Elixir developers? It's like, why do you care if they're an Elixir developer? The question is, how do we make more junior developers, right? Well, and actually, I think the question is deeper than that. And that is, how do we help how do we help the population as a whole find what they want to do? Because I think if you can get people doing what they're interested in doing, they do it well. Yeah, but who cares about that? That's true. That is true. But like the point is, I think at the end of the day, right, like you're developing a skill set. I think boot camps do it all right. And I think there's a lot of room to grow, though. I think there's still so much of a focus on tooling and so much of a focus on individual language and language features. That's not a bad entry point for it. But I really do think that the initial phase is just like what you're talking about, looking at problems and breaking them down and figuring out where to go from there, getting that gut instinct outside of the paradigm of a language. But to build a gut instinct, when you start off learning to drive, sure, all right, you have to be told, do this, do that, all right? And you have to put up, as a, as a learner driver, you've got, to be, you've got to put up with someone saying, break, right? Yeah. And not arguing about it because that's kind of important, right? So there's a time where you actually have to go through the motion. You have to be mechanical to some extent. Yeah. So to build your intuition requires repetition of the external factors. So what are you doing about it? Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that's where boot camps come, are actually quite good. The trick then is to take a boot camp experience, which is, like you say, very focused on novice to like competent level people in the driver's scale. Get those, get those people, get them out there doing stuff, and only then when they get to industry will they start to realize that there are holes in terms of what they know about software and software development. So then the trick is to provide ongoing development for those people where they can subscribe, not subscribe the wrong word, where they can participate. But where they can participate in, in learning all these extra things that they need to learn. That's, That's a long, he's right. I don't think you can write a book about this because it's not a structured thing. It's kind of like, could you write a book on how to be a figure skater? Isn't this what the pragmatic programmer is about, though? No. Well, do you remember? (laughs) (laughs) He told me earlier that he listens to it on Audible. Yeah, that's because his girlfriend recorded it. (laughs) That's true. She did the the, the recording? Yeah, she's she's an actress, and so she has a good voice for it. Lovely. Except one particular word. Is she in here? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Although, actually, I was watching The Crown the other day, and they say it that way as well. So what is the word? Appreciate. Appreciate? Yeah, that's, thank you. Yes. She <laughs> says it the English royal way, which is fantastic. But, but go back to the book. I mean, the book. Yes, the book helps, but I think it is too abstract for a novice to pick out everything from it. Do you think there's a version of the pragmatic programmer that could be written for novices? Well, the other problem, of course, is that most people who are young coming out of book book camps probably will never actually read a physical book in their lives. So, or read a full, I mean, the idea of long form books is really kind of dying out, which is a real shame. Uh, Let's pull the audience because we have a live audience here. How many of you read physical books? Okay. I think this is nearly a hundred percent of the audience. Yeah. All all thousands of them. Ben Wheat says he also reads Kindle books. I think that the modern modus operandi is to do all the things. 
Like everybody's listening to Audible, everybody's on Kindle, everybody's got physical books, and it's really just about the the book itself and what context you want the book in. That's my opinion, anyway. I'm sorry. Say that again. And the deal I got on Amazon for it. Right, and the deal that you got on Amazon for it. But but back to your original point, it seems like what you're saying is it's something you have to do, right? This is something you have to learn by doing it. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's not necessarily received information because someone can sit there and say, break down problems better all day. And it does nothing. Right. The only way you can learn it is by going out into the world and breaking down problems. Yeah. I have this thing where I shock people by saying that no. I don't I don't write unit tests. They all go, what? you know, that's that's irreligious. It's sacrilege. Right. You should be burnt at some stake for that. And the reality is that over my many years in software, I have written so many unit tests that I've kind of internalized. I mean, for me, a unit test's big benefit is to help me with the design of my software, right? The mm-hmm. unit test is a design tool that helps me write decoupled code. Mm-hmm. And I have discovered, I, just as an experiment, this is just me. Whenever I feel comfortable doing something, I stop doing it for a while. And in this case, I stopped unit testing for like Three months or something. So, what kind of tests were you writing? No, you were not writing tests at all. No, nope. this is how you yeah. know that he didn't teach me to code. This is the part of the podcast we delete. Yeah, <laughs> see, you see, you see. This is a burnt book. It's not happening. Yeah, repression, <laughs> repression for new ideas. That's what happens in the world, right? Hey, I, look, I, I represent this repression for bad ideas. In this case, I represent the mainstream media. I will be repressing the correct <laughs> truths of the matter. I got your back, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Actually, I stole your place. You should come back up here and finish that. No, continue. Please. Here's the thing, though, right? You say that. Have you ever tried it? Cowboy coding? Is Dan in the room? If my, if my boss isn't here, then yes. If my boss is here, no. Okay. Here's the thing. Everybody is different. Right. right. There is no rule. All of these people like me who go out there and tell people how to do things are wrong. Because it's all situational. It all depends on who you are, where you are, what you're doing. So for me, I, as an experiment, stopped writing tests for three months, whatever it was. And with everything I do, I always say, what's the feedback loop that's going to tell me whether this is successful or not, right? So I looked at code quality in terms of bugs and stuff that I was fixing. And I discovered it made no difference for me in that circumstance. Now, I was working on my own code. I wasn't working as part of a team. I didn't have to integrate with anybody else's code, but it was still interesting to me that I did not have to write those tests. And I sat down to try and work out why, and I discovered I was still writing my code as if I was writing tests. And so all of the design benefits that testing led me to was there, but I didn't have to write tests. So in this case, are you advocating for testing as a sort of pedagogical tool? No. I'm just saying I'm advocating for if you are currently doing something that you believe is good, prove it. All right. Stop taking received wisdom from people. People that say, oh, you got to do testing. or We need to bring up the infinite monkey theory <laughs> because this came up yesterday where I said that infinite monkey theory is BS. That if you had infinite monkeys being on infinite keyboards, they would never come up with Shakespeare. And they were all like, no, you're wrong. Infinite times infinite equals eventually you'll get the small probability. And I was like, nope, you would just get nonsense at infinitum forever. And then I was, they were like, no, I can prove it probabilistically. I'm like, yeah, but you can't prove it for real. Because if you actually were, we've got all the computers in the world. Prove it. Okay. Prove it for real. I challenge every, I have a buddy that actually claimed to have proved it. His name's Jesse Anderson. And he got written about in the Wall Street Journal for this. He had a bunch of computers, right, like making up random text. And then he would look for strings of characters that are contained in Shakespeare. And then he'd put it together in Shakespeare. The problem is that's not random. That's Jesse looking for Shakespeare and random characters. Can I, can I make the observation? Tell me. Shakespeare was written by a monkey. <laughs> Just give monkeys enough time and they will write Shakespeare. Prove it. I just did. Yeah. They will evolve into people. Only if you accept only if you accept the premise that he's a monkey, which I don't accept. 
Okay. We're moving on from this yeah. right now. <laughs> I'm acting as interim host. This is now my podcast. We've gone off the rails. <laughs> this, I, is a, this is an Elixir conference, so we got off the rails a long time ago. Dave Thomas, are you giving up the mic? I am giving up the mic. Thank you I so much. I stole the mic from him. I'm going to give it back. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we want to have you back on. We want to do a full-on episode with the Thomases. Oh, if that would be possible. Okay. Uh, Zach says yes. Dave says yes. It's on. John Carstens is joining us. Yeah, it wouldn't be cool too. John, were you, were you on the show already? Were you already yeah. with us? That's he kept good. saying he was giving the mic back. I was like, John had sat with us yet. No, I sat down for a second, and then he walked over and asked if he could sit with his son and talk. So then I got out. So that's what he's talking about. Do, do you think that that was a moment? Did something happen here? Yeah, Did we have a embarrassment. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> it must have like a mind connection or something. Yeah. yeah. John, you're speaking tomorrow or t- this afternoon? Yeah, in like an hour. John, where do you work? I work for SmartRent. And y'all have Elixir? Lots of it, yes. Running in production? Yes. Is it totally Elixir? Yeah, yeah. It's mostly Elixir. There's a lot of TypeScript in front of anything. So we actually do a lot of nurse work. So I work with Frank as well, and we Frank Frank Hunleth Frank Hunleth. So we Frank Hunleth is such a gentle things. soul. I love Frank. Yeah, he's having conference envy right now, and he keeps messaging me. Really? Because he's watching the Twitter feed. I hope he listens to this podcast and is like, "Dang it, I missed out." T- tell us something about like about what you're doing over at SmartRent, especially if people were thinking about maybe applying for a job. Like, tell us, tell us about the architecture, calling, getting down in the nitty gritty details. Because people who listen to this podcast love the nitty gritty details. Okay, so SmartRent, in a nutshell, is basically a property management suite using smart home technologies. So it's all about incorporating that fun stuff, home automation that managers and property owners can use and that the tenants can use. And it also provides layers of asset protection as well, like this prevent fires or water link sensors, things like that. And so that's the side that I primarily work in. I'm on the firmware embedded team, which is the whole hardware. There's like four of us and that's all of hardware engineering at SmartRan. We help integrate with existing technologies like existing sensors and stuff like that. But then we have an aspect of where we actually made custom boards that run nerves that are like a collaborative hub. Because you, the problem you have with all these home automation things is they all want to talk to the internet or they all want to talk to something that talks to the internet. And all those some things are different. And so we slap our hub in the middle there and we just talk to all of those and have one single source going on. So then we have another typical infrastructure, whole web app, and people can use, tennis can use, property managers can use, mobile app, and we interface with all that. That is really exciting. I know there's a lot of people that want to work on nerves. Man, I wish we had more time. We do have to wrap this up, unfortunately. I want to give both of our guests an opportunity to get a final word in. John, do you have anything else you want to plug or ask for the audience, anything like that? No. <laughs> I don't know. I was just going to see where it went. Well, we want to have you back on the show sure. uh, for a full-on interview. Zach Thomas, can you do you have a last just word, a, a final plug? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I was just going to say uh, I work at a place called Blinker in Denver right now. We're doing more and more Elixir every day, and we might be hiring fairly soon. So if that sounds interesting, uh, take a look at us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zach Thomas, John Carson's. Really appreciate everyone that got to come on, be a part of the show. Really appreciate our studio audience. Uh, can you guys give yourselves a round of applause? Big old round of applause. This has been a live episode of Elixir Wizards with myself, Justice Epen, and my co-host, Eric Osters. Thank you for everybody that participated.